Well, I believe I owe everybody a little explanation. I said, uh, I, I was talking about some names in the book of Hosea, and uh, we were talking about different names, and I said one, uh, Gomer's uh, father's name was Deblaim. I told you the very great significance of that name is two cakes. I also said that people used to call me two cakes in high school, and I told you I wasn't going to tell that story. Uh, that, was just, that was just a joke. Only Mike Edwards calls me two cakes. All right, and uh, if, if you want that story, you're going to have to go to him and he'll have to make something up because that's, uh, that's just a joke too. Um, I'm really excited to get back into this book. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful book, but if you were here with us last week, you're like, is it a beautiful book? Because it sounded pretty, pretty rough. In fact, we're going to get into some rough stuff today. I hope you guys brought your seatbelts uh, so you guys can kind of strap in. Language gets a little rough in chapter two. <laughs> Leanne, hopefully you brought some headphones or something for the kids. Uh, But, uh, I mean, this chapter gets real, but it also gets really, really good. And I hope that you can see that as as we get through this. Uh, So we're going to start out in Hosea 110. I'm not going to get there quite yet. Um, But what I want you to do is just imagine with me, if you would, that the word of the Lord would come to you like it did When God would speak to the prophets of old, when the word of the Lord came to Abraham, this is what he said in Genesis 15, 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. What a beautiful thing. Can you imagine hearing the word of the Lord come to you and say something as beautiful as that? The word of the Lord also came to Solomon in 1 Kings 6, 10 through 12. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. This is what the word of the Lord said. This is what God said. Concerning this house that you are building, he's speaking of the temple, Solomon, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules... And keep all of my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. The word of God came to Solomon and says, Listen, I will be faithful to you as I was faithful to David. Could you imagine the Lord saying such a beautiful thing to you? The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in in Jeremiah 1 4 through 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah hears a word from the Lord, and the Lord says to him, Jeremiah, I've made you uh, someone, my mouthpiece to to all of the world. What a beautiful thing to hear from from the Lord. And then we get to the word of the Lord to Hosea. And if you weren't with us last week, needless to say, this is a little bit different. When the word of the Lord came to Hosea, he said, go and marry a prostitute. (laughs) The last thing that you would think God would ever say to you, if the word of the, I mean, Hosea would have read some of these stories, right? He would have heard these things, how the Lord would speak to his people through a prophet. And when the word of the Lord came to him, that's what it said. And it was surprising to him. And though it may seem a little bit funny to us now because we're like, that's, that was a real, real left turn there. Uh, it's actually 
not too funny of a situation at all. There was a reason that God told Hosea to do this, and it was because Hosea's marriage was going to serve as a reflection or a parallel of God's relationship to his people, all right? And so God tells him, you are to marry a prostitute. And the reason that he was to do that was because God's relationship with Israel was very same. They were an unfaithful, dirty people. And so God says, all right, you're going to be my prophet, and here's what I'm going to have you do. You're going to go and you're going to marry an unfaithful, dirty woman. And people are going to look at your marriage and they're going to see how my relationship with them is a reflection of your relationship with your wife. Well, before we really get into this, I really want to just kind of recap everything that we kind of hit on last week. I know some of you weren't here, uh, and some of you may have forgotten. Uh, I forgot everything, so I had to go back and and read it. (laughs) Here's the first thing that I want you to remember, okay? The theme of the book of Hosea is God's overflowing, constant, unconditional love towards Israel, his people. All right, the theme of this entire book, and I know it didn't seem like that was gonna be the theme last week, uh, but if you stick with me for the next two weeks, you're gonna see how this book shows God's incredible, unconditional, selfless love that is constant and overflowing. I don't know if any of you caught one of my last sermons. I think it was actually in October when I preached this message, but I preached on God introducing himself to Moses, and and God is really just telling Moses who he is and what kind of a God he is. And he says, I am a God abounding in steadfast love. And when I talked about that, I talked about how abounding, the word abounding just means overflowing, all right? So he is overflowing with love. So the, I mean, if you could just picture a cup just spilling over with water constantly, maybe if you, if you fudged and put a hose there, that would make it like that, all right? This, this cup just continuing to have an overflow of water. So God's love is overflowing like that, but it's not just an overflowing love. He just doesn't have an abundance of love. It's also a steadfast love. And the steadfast love of God means that his love doesn't fluctuate. It's not high and it's not low. It's always steady. And God in this book is going to show Hosea and all of Israel that he has love for his people. And his love isn't like their love for each other or anyone else. His love is always overflowing and it's always steadfast and constant. You can always count on it. That means when we do something wrong or when Hosea or Israel does something wrong, his love never changes. It's always overflowing and it's always steadfast and constant. We can always count on it. And so God shares that with Moses. We see actually the same phrase in Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, which we'll get to a, uh, in a second, but I just want to read this little, uh, this little part to you right here. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. So we can see that the Lord tells Moses on Mount Sinai, here's who I am. I'm a God of I'm a God abounding in steadfast love. Stick with me a while, Moses, and you're going to see all of it play out. 
And I think really the book of Hosea is a playing out of this love that God has for his people. And I hope that we can see that today. The second thing that I want you to remember uh, today is just the role of a prophet. I talked about it last week. The pastor uh, mentioned it on Sunday as well. The role of a prophet was to communicate God's word to God's people. It wasn't just to tell the future. And we think of prophet, we think, oh, maybe that's somebody that tells the future. That's not what we're talking about. Sometimes the Lord would give a prophet a word about the future, but, but always God would give his prophet a word to tell the people. All right, And that's what the prophet would do. He would tell God's word to God's people. And Hosea, as a prophet, had a purpose. And his purpose as a prophet, and we talked about this a little last week, was a little different. Normal prophets would usually just receive a word from the Lord and repeat that to the people. Hosea did that. Uh, but God called him to also do something a little different. In fact, he called him and his life to really act out the word of God for the people so that they would not only hear something, but they would see a representation of what God wanted them to see. And God wanted them to see uh, that they were far from him. So if our theme is God's unconditional, selfless love for his people, the real backdrop of this entire story is idolatry, okay? God's people had abandoned him and went after other gods, and it grieved the Lord's heart. His people had strayed away. They had forsaken their first love. They had cheated on him, if you will, and this is exactly how he looks at it. You were my people. You have cheated me. You have left me. You have abandoned me, and so that's where we get this idea of a marriage. Much like a wife cheats on her husband and breaks the marriage covenant, Israel had broken their covenant with God, and that's the backdrop of this entire story. God's people abandoning him, him unconditionally loving them. And you see this pattern all throughout scripture, all right? You see God's people wander away from him, and at some point, he brings them back in. You can see this really clearly. I mean, just the entire history of Israel. You can probably look at your own lives and see this pattern happening, maybe, hopefully, maybe it only happened once. Maybe you came to the Lord, maybe straight away, maybe he brought you back. Hopefully it's not a constant pattern, but in the life of Israel, it was a constant pattern. Generation after generation would distance themselves from the Lord, and the Lord would try and bring them back as he always did. And so you, so you see this really easily in the book of Judges. And I mean, you can pretty much turn to Judges and pick any chapter and start reading it, and all you're going to see is this exact pattern. People were following the Lord, then they did evil in the sight of the Lord, then they cry out to God, and God saves them. We're going to look at one example from Judges 3, and uh, I'm going to turn over there. This is Judges 3, and I want to start off in verse 6. This is what it says, and their daughters... Uh, they took to themselves, so, so Israel is living in another land, and in that land there are other people, and their daughters began to take, uh, their daughters, be, uh, sorry, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives. So Israelites married uh, all of these other Canaanite people that were in the land. And it wasn't that that alone was a sin. What happened was what would happen if they did that. And if they did that, what they would do is they would find themselves in a place where they would be distancing themselves 
from the Lord. And that's what, exactly what had happened. And their own daughters they gave to their sons, to the, Canaanite, to the Canaanites, and they served their gods. The Israelites served the Canaanite gods. This is verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And we'll talk about the Baals in just a second. Uh, Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why? Because they were doing evil in sight of the Lord. And he sold them into the land of Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, listen to this, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over the king so that the land had rest for 40 years, all right? So you have these people doing evil in the sight of the Lord. They have distanced themselves from him until they realize we are very destitute. We need God again. They call out to God again. When they call out to God again, God raises and judges, raises a judge to save them. We just go to the next verse. It says, they had rest in the land for 40 years. Then Othniel died. This is verse 12, the next verse. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So they're going back into the same pattern. And that's the pattern that they find themselves in when Hosea was ministering to the people of Israel. When Hosea received the word from the Lord and he was to tell that to the Lord's people, this is the situation that they are in. They have distanced themselves from the Lord. Idolatry was running rampant. There And so what I really want to do is talk a little about those Canaanite uh, gods. They were huge stumbling blocks for the people of Israel. There were as many as about 150 Canaanite gods, and they're sometimes referred to uh, as Baal, uh, maybe just, just in general, but Baal was also kind of thought of as the head of this, this pantheon of gods, or Baals, which would just include all of the false gods of the Canaanites. And these gods were false gods. But the people of the land of Canaan worshiped them. And as they, as the Israelites intermarried and began to have children and relationships with the Canaanites, they found that their faith in the one true God was beginning to waver because their hearts were drawn to other things. And what they were drawn to was the idols of their spouses and the idols of the land. And so the worship of Baal or the Baals included all of these things, sexual immorality, animal sacrifice, idols galore, and even human sacrifice. So I want to talk just a second about what idolatry actually is, because if you don't understand what idolatry is as we get into Hosea, you're just not going to understand the entire book of Hosea. And so here's what I want to say about idolatry. It's an exclusive term or concept, okay? Here's what I mean. Idolatry is the act of worshiping a false god in the form of an idol, okay? Now, that is very exclusive, and I think we here in America, because we don't deal with this too much, you and I do not deal with idolatry and the worship of a god in the form of an idol 
uh, in our daily lives, do we? It's not really something that we think about. And so we want to take other things and we want to make them idols in our life. And that's what America has kind of done. Christian America has said, okay, well, these, since we don't deal with real idols, we make idols out of other things. And I, I 100% understand where that kind of thinking is coming from. And what we're really saying is we're valuing a lot of things more than we're valuing God. And it becomes an idol in our lives. Well, I, I wouldn't use that term because I have seen real idolatry firsthand in actually several different countries. And when you see real idolatry, you don't call some rich guy that's just kind of greedy, you don't call him an idolater. He's not worshiping a false God. It's a far cry from what actual idolatry is. If we see somebody taking like extra good care of their vehicle and they're always out there waxing it, well, that guy is worshiping his car. No, that's not exactly what idolatry is at all. Idolatry is the worship of a God in the form of an idol. Um, I've seen this, uh, I'll just do a, I'm I'm pretty good at dropping uh, names of countries, so I'll drop one here. Uh, It's been a while, it's been a week, I think last week I mentioned Argentina. Uh, I've been to China two times, and uh, it was really the first time I had had ever been in a a totally different culture than my own, and uh, we had this chance to go to this place called Swallow Caves, Um, I do not know how to say that in Chinese, that's probably translated. Uh, but we got this chance to go to these caverns, and uh, these people that we had really grown fond of, who worked at the university that we were studying the Chinese language at, uh, they had, had taken us there. It was kind of like a field trip for, for we Americans, just to go do something fun. And so we come to the cave. There's all these sorts of banners. I have no idea what they say. There's people climbing up on these, I mean, pretty much these, these stalactites that are hanging uh, from the ceiling as you enter the cave and they're hanging stuff and it's just a big spectator thing. There's a river right under them and the river goes through this cave. It was really beautiful. And then we get in the cave. It's very, very similar to uh, Carlsbad Caverns, but just a lot more water and, and obviously not as big. Uh, but we're going through and they have all the things light, lit, lit up so you can see the, all the caves and they light things up in different colors. It was kind of cool to see all these different colors that kind of looked, uh, kind of looked like a rainbow of stalactites and stalagmites and stuff. And it was really cool. Uh, and so we're going through, we're just having a really good time and we're, we're coming to the end of the cave where we need to, to go out. And I turned the corner and, uh, our friends had gone ahead of us and they, they had gotten to, to everywhere that we wanted to get and they had just gotten there sooner. And I turned this corner and I see this huge statue of Buddha. I mean, just out in the middle uh, of, of this cave. And I was just like, this is absolutely crazy. And, uh, and that struck me enough on its own. And then I saw one of the, my friends who I'd met in China, who was, who was taking us on this field trip. Uh, I saw her, I, I saw the, the statue of Buddha and I, I looked down and I saw her and she's kneeling in front of this statue and it ripped my heart out. I had never seen someone bow down to a false god before, and images like Hosea come to my mind. You're abandoning your one true God. You're worshiping something that's false. That is idolatry. I have a picture uh, of that. I think James will throw that up for us. Uh, That's at Swallow's Caves. That's the giant Buddha 
uh, that my, my friend was, was bowing down to. I'm not sure if uh, she ever came to faith. I know that there were so many teams sent to that same school. Hopefully she did come to faith. Um, but it, seeing idolatry will really define idolatry for you. And I think you would be less likely to call, oh, well, that guy just has a lot of idols in his life. Well, if he's not worshiping a false god in the form of an idol, he doesn't have idols in his life. He has things that he's valuing too much. He's giving priority to the wrong things, no doubt, but he is not worshiping another god, and it's a lot different. So Israel is worshiping these false gods. And this is what God says about those false gods through Hosea in chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. My people incurred guilt by worshiping Baal, and they were spiritually dead. And now they sin more and more. Hosea, this is God's message through Hosea to the Israelites. And they make for themselves metal images Idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. In verse, uh, in chapter 14, 8, God says, O Ephraim, O Israel, what have I to do with idols? I am your God. What do I have to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. What God is saying is, I'm not an idol, and I don't approve of idolatry. I'm the one who gives you everything that you had, and you've been crediting it to these idols. It's I am the one who answers you. I'm the one who looks after you. From me comes all the fruit of your life. And so we come to the calling of Hosea. And Hosea does what God tells him to do. God said, marry a prostitute. Hosea goes and he does it. And he marries Gomer. All right. And don't forget, he marries this prostitute and he loves her unconditionally. This is how the relationship parallels with God's relationship with Israel. Hosea actually loves his wife. All right. He loves her and they're married. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Gomer pushing a baby carriage, right? All right. So what we have now is children come along, all right? This marriage, it, it, it was actually a beautiful thing. Hosea loved his wife, and they do what most people do, and they begin to have children. We're not going to talk about much uh, more of that, but uh, the two begin having children, and God calls Hosea to name his children. And we went over the names of his children the last time. Uh, but I want you to, uh, to listen what God tells Hosea to, marry, uh, to name his children, all right? Hosea receives another word from the Lord, and after the first word from the Lord, he might be a little hesitant to pick up the phone, say, I don't know what God's going to tell me now. And so he gets direction from God uh, on his children's names, and he has to name them these things, Jezreel, which basically means bloodshed, uh, Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy, and lo ami, which means not my people. So after all of this negativity, we remember that Hosea's name, we remember the name of this book. And so we're reading through verses one through nine, and we're like, man, this is, this is a rough time for Hosea. But if we remember what Hosea's name means, which is salvation, we remember 
that maybe this book is a little, has a little more detail than what we've seen so far. Maybe we have a little more hope. And then we remember Gomer's name, and it means complete. So we have some hope that not all is lost with Hosea in his marriage, with his children that have names of bloodshed, no mercy, and not my people. And we also have hope that not all is lost between God and his people. All right? He said, I want you to marry this woman because... Israel has been like this woman to me. So after all of this bad news, we get to verse 10, and that's where we're going to pick up right now. God gives us a glimpse of hope, of his love for Israel. So let's read uh, Hosea 1.10. I need to get over there. This is verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Doesn't that sound like a promise he made to Abraham? Your descendants will be numerous like the stars in the heavens. They can't be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, remember that was Hosea's uh, son's name, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel, the two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom, shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. God is going to do something here. And so now we're going to get into chapter two. And what uh, really in chapter two, what we're really going to see is God's love and mercy. And, and all of it just shines through this dark and bleak situation. But we're also going to get a picture, a little more picture, of how Israel has distanced themselves from the Lord. And we're going to get a picture of how uh, Hosea's wife, Gomer, has also distanced herself from him. So we're going to see some parallels. And this is a pretty harsh reality for Hosea in his marriage with his three children. But this is an even harsher reality for God and his people. So this is what verse 2 says. Say to your brothers, you are my people. All right? Remember, God said, name your son, not my people. Now he's saying, say to your brothers, you are my people. Say to your sisters, you have received mercy. Remember, he had to name his daughter, no mercy. You have received mercy. And this is really where I want to start seeing that parallel. So I want you to pay attention. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face, her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day that she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. Can you see this, how it parallels Hosea's marriage? Plead with your mother, come back. Plead with your mother to stop doing what she's inclined to do. She's trying to leave me. But can you also see God's relationship with his people? God saying to his people, don't continue to abandon me. 
plead with your mother, plead with Israel not to abandon me. God and Hosea in this little passage, one through five, are just deeply wounded. And what God is saying to Israel is, if you don't stop this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to expose you for who you truly are, that you are someone who has broken our covenant. And in, the, in, the, in front of everyone, your deeds are going to be exposed. We'll continue. This is the second part of verse five. For she said, okay, Israel slash Hosea's wife, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. She's just saying, I'm gonna go after these other people because these are the people who provide for me. And that's exactly what Israel did. They said, we're going to leave you, God, and we're going to go after the people, the gods, the false gods who we think are providing for us because we don't think you're providing for us. So we're going to break our covenant with you. We're going to leave and we're going to go and do what we want. It's pretty interesting to notice, if, if, uh, if you didn't know this, that Baal is also the god that, that was actually credited with bringing forth the crop. He was a fertility god, not only fertility from the earth, but fertility uh, in relations and relationships and children and things like that. Uh, but it's, it's uh, if you live in a world surrounded by people who credit this one person for being the provider of everything and you're intermingling with those people, at some point you're going to begin to think, maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they're thinking the right things. Maybe Baal does provide for us. Maybe he is the one who blesses our crops. And that's exactly what Israel had done. They had gone after other lovers who were going to provide for them. Therefore, God says, I will hedge up her way with thorns. All right, to hedge up someone's way with thorns would be to direct them, not let them go where they wanted to go. And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers. Okay, Israel will pursue their other gods. Hosea's wife will pursue other men, but not be over, able to overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. So here we see God protecting Israel from what was bad for them. Even though they didn't think it was bad for them, they thought it's a good idea for us to separate ourselves from God. It's a good idea for us to follow false gods. God says, there's gonna be a limit. At some point, I'm gonna put some limits because you don't know how bad this is for you. And he does that in our own lives as well. And, and really, on the fourth week that we talk about Hosea, we're going to get to how all of this relates to us, and we're going to also look for Jesus in this passage, and it's going to be great. But God is saying, I'm going to protect you. Even though you don't know this is bad for you, it is. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Doesn't that re remind you of the book of Judges? They were doing evil in the sight of the Lord until they decided to call out to him to save them. Same thing. She shall say, I will go and I'll return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who was giving her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold. God is saying, these false gods aren't the ones providing for you. I've always been the one that provides for you. 
I'm the one that provides all the flax, all the wool, everything, the wine, the oil, silver and gold, which they used for Baal. This is verse 9. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth. That word mirth means amusement, uh, being glad in everything that she was doing. Her feast, her her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast of days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them. And she adorned herself with her ring and her jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. This is a sad, sad story of God's relationship with Israel. It was a relationship that he didn't want with them. In fact, the relationship that he wanted with Israel was to be closely involved in every aspect of their lives. He wanted them to be his people. And he wanted to be their God, and they had just thrown it all out the window. The same thing goes for Hosea. He marries a prostitute. And it's a sad story for him of love lost. And this should break our hearts in both ways, for Hosea and for God in this case. Now we get to the good part. This is where we start seeing the Lord's mercy on Israel. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her back into the wilderness, and I'll speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Achor, which means trouble, I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And there, shall, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the times when she came out of the land of Egypt. Israel was responsive to the Lord during those times. Yes, Lord, we'll follow you. You're performing miracles. We're going to follow you, and we love you. We can't wait to see what you're going to do. Now they quickly fall off of that as well, but in her youth, Israel listened to the Lord. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. This is, the, this is beautiful. In those days, in that day, you will call me my husband again. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day. With the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish or do away with the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. This doesn't sound like someone responding to uh, infidelity, does it? This is a beautiful picture of God saying, you've done this, but I told you, I'm a God abounding in steadfast love. It never runs out. Whatever you do, I still love you. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, there's that word, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. 
And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. God's love for you is the same as his love for Israel. It's always abounding and it's always steadfast. And when you wander away, he may let you go. But when you call out to him, he will be there for you to return. That's all we have tonight. Thank you guys for coming to Grow. We'll see you back next week at 6.15. Have a wonderful night. You're dismissed.